Welcome to Unlocking Impact. I'm your host, Sarah Schoenfeld, CEO of the Trade Impact Foundation. In this podcast, we explore issues at the intersection of the global economy, sustainability, and human rights. In today's episode, I talk with Kian Meshkot. Kian is an attorney specializing in U.S. economic sanctions and export control manners. In our conversation, Kian explains what sanctions are, how and why countries use them, and whether they effectively address human rights violations around the world. Kian and I also talk about some recent cases where sanctions have been used, such as in Afghanistan, Iran, China, Russia. And we break down the impact of these sanctions on a human level, as well as the impact that they have on the way that we interact and do business with people in these countries. Kian has years of experience in this area and has represented clients ranging from multinational conglomerates to small businesses and individuals. Kian has also written extensively on trade-related issues for various legal journals and publications. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kian, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Sure. So just to get started, I thought we could start with what are sanctions? What are economic sanctions? How have they been used in the past? What is a typical sanction? What does it look like? Many countries use sanctions. The United Nations Security Council has a sanctions program that all member states are bound by whenever they make a decision. So it's something that's being used all over the world, especially by major superpowers like the United States. And to give a very generic definition of sanctions, I guess I would say it's the freezing of a sanction target assets with the legal jurisdiction of a country where that target can either be an entire country, its government or an organization, a business or an individual. And then that jurisdiction greatly restricting or prohibiting any transactions with that target. And so if an individual is sanctioned, what does that mean for them practically? Basically means they're blocked off from all of their assets that the sanctioning country has the jurisdiction to go after or that's that's within their purview. And then prohibiting anyone that the sanctioning country can prohibit from doing business with that target. Let's talk about a specific example. So say Afghanistan, you know, we saw some sanctions coming out that were targeting the Taliban. Did you find that that was an effective measure and that it was actually able to, you know, were the sanctions able to meet the goals that were intended? Right. So with with, with the Taliban, what ended up happening is most of the members of the so-called Taliban organization have been already sanctioned for many years under OFAC, and OFAC is the agency that administers U.S. sanctions programs, the Office of Foreign Assets Control that sits under the U.S. Department of Treasury under its counterterrorism sanctions program. And what ended up happening recently is with the Taliban coming to be the de facto government of Afghanistan you have them behind now behind the entire Afghan economy and government. So before the the fall of the prior Afghan government, you know, all those players were still already sanctioned. It's just that your day-to-day 
business transactions with Afghanistan wouldn't have those players involved. Now that they're in charge, it becomes much more of an issue uh, for businesses that are trying to do business, uh, trying to, you know, engage in their otherwise normal operations um, with Afghanistan. So that's what's really creating the, I guess you could call it the sanctions mess with Afghanistan, is that now you have all those sanctioned players behind the government and the economy. So how does the U.S. government deal with that, where they're, you want to, I guess the sanctions are aimed to address the behavior of the Taliban officials and those that are connected to the government, but those individuals are so intertwined with the entire population on the ground. So we're seeing, you know, and, and we're seeing a number of humanitarian crises coming out about in Afghanistan at the same time, one of which is the Taliban takeover. How do these sanctions deal with the fact that you have a government that you'd like to penalize or address in some other way, but you also have people that you'd like to help? How does the sanctions deal with that? The way that you know, OFAC typically tries to address the, I guess you would call it the, the humanitarian issue that comes into fruition with a sanctions program that heavily targets a, a specific region is through the issuance of licenses, um, specifically general licenses. So what we see in Afghanistan right now and with the, with the sanctions that target that region is that OFAC is kind of taking a, a page out of its playbook with, with Iran in that it sees humanitar- the humanitarian crisis there. And, and what you need with uh, resolving that uh, issue is providing medical supplies, food, agricultural products, which, which under the Iran program have been provided through a general license for transactions involving those types of goods and services. And you see, we we recently saw a general license that was issued for non-commercial personal remittances. That's kind of like Afghan Americans, for example, who'd like to, you know, send money back home to help their family support themselves and and buy medical necessities and food and water, etc. Right, right. Being, you know, under the Biden administration, uh, back in October, they released a comprehensive review of the uh, U.S. sanctions programs, U.S. sanctions regime in its entirety. And a big point they were trying to address there, a gap they had observed or issue they had observed was that um, with a lot of the sanctions programs, because they're so comprehensive, because they're so prohibitive in nature and by design, that humanitarian aid that's necessary for the people that are living in those heavily sanctioned uh, regions is is kind of closed off. And the so what they're really trying to focus on is what did that what does the U.S. government need to do to make sure that the stakeholders in any sanctions program that's impl- implemented, including private industry, civil society, uh, financial institutions, aren't scared off. And are otherwise, uh, you know, confident in in being able to make those humanitarian related transactions happen. And in your opinion, I know you've been watching these sort of exemptions and and licenses come out for a while. In your opinion, do you think that 
those are effective? Do you think that companies are still are able to provide all these different, you know, medical and and food related and similar essential goods and services? Do you find that companies are scared away or that they're able to navigate the sanctions compliance field and, you know, follow that ex- exemption, the the licensing process and feel comfortable that they are within the law and they're able to get the necessary goods and possibly services to the people on the ground? Well, I think how the um, Iran sanctions have played out has had a unintended negative consequence on all the other sanctions programs in that, uh, you know, most foreign financial institutions, most U.S. financial institutions, which are necessary to facilitate um, all these transactions, have become very risk averse. Uh, So, you know, those licenses, those exemptions, they do still have or, or, or they or they still do facilitate humanitarian aid to sanctioned regions. But I think with how the Iran sanctions program has played out with the nuclear deal that happened about like five years ago, everyone was excited. Foreign financial institutions jumped on board, were loosening up their compliance programs to be able to let their clients enter the Iranian market. And then with the Trump administration, we saw a huge rollback uh, that happened very quickly. And then we, we, we've continued to see enforcement actions against uh, those that were involved. So I think it's created this, this environment worldwide where nobody really wants to deal with a sanctioned target, now whether it be Iran or anywhere else, just because those companies' compliance programs, you know, they don't, they're not piecemeal according to each, each U.S. sanctions program. They kind of like operate as, as one, one unit and, and they're more risk averse. And so when, you know, just based on the current, you know, obviously the current climate um, with the pandemic and everything, are we seeing, you know, the free access to, you know, the Cuban and the Iranian populations with regards to vaccines and other, you know, necessary medical treatment? So for a, for a lot of these destinations, um, OFAC has issued uh, general licenses that are specifically tailored to, to um, facilitating COVID-related supplies um, uh, for, for the uh, populations there. But again, it, it comes back to the issue of the necessary players and making those transactions happen, not wanting to touch anything that is Iran or Cuba related, just as a matter of compliance and, and having become very risk averse based on how sanctions have played out you know, in the past five years. So shifting to another kind of application of sanctions, we see, uh, we have seen sanctions that were specifically aimed to address the human rights violations in the Uyghur region in China. And my understanding is that those sanctions were applied to members of the Chinese Communist Party and other, you know, individuals who have been linked, whether through whether a corporate actor or a uh, some local government official who has been linked either to a specific human rights violation or to the Chinese Communist Party in general. So what do you think about the efficacy of sanctions in that sort of scenario? 
the specific sanctions program that's been used there, and it's been kind of used in unison with other U.S. foreign policy tools, I'd say like U.S. export controls, um, has been the Global Magnitsky Sanctions Program. And that authorizes the president or the executive branch to sanction human rights abusers and corrupt actors really anywhere without any relation to what country they're in. And we've been seeing a lot of use of that in responding to human rights crises or corruption involving China. Now, how effective it is if, if I'm a Chinese government official or if I'm a Chinese entity, if I'm, if I'm sanctioned by the U.S., I really lose my ability, not ent- entirely, but to a large part, I lose my ability to access the global financial system, global commerce. But if I'm in China, you know, the Chinese economy, safe to say, is, is pretty well insulated. Is it going to really make you fail? That's a question for for the for U.S. policymakers to decide. Okay, and then I guess one more during our trip around the world here. One more example. Yeah, uh, we recently heard a lot of threats waged against Russia and Russian officials. That you know, I think there's been a lot of activity along the border of uh, with Ukraine and and Russia. And I think one thing we were hearing a lot of is, well, we're going. You know, if you pass certain benchmark or if you pass a, a certain amount of action, we're going to take sanctions actions or we're going to take other other measures against Russia and Russian officials. But I, I think that many, many of whom are already sanctioned, right? Can you explain a bit about that? Is that, again, going back to the Global Magnitsky Act or is it something else entirely? No, that, that I would say that's something else um, entirely. You know, if, if Russia were to um, invade Ukraine, and you know, if that if if that were to play out, I, I think the Biden administration has already communicated that there would be a swift response in Biden's use of the of his IEPA authority to implement what would otherwise probably be a completely new sanctions program targeting Russia. That the where the aim is to cut off Russia entirely from the U.S. financial system. And by default, the global financial system, uh, which because it would it would also be carried out in concert with um, you know other NATO members, um, so the EU and 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 really the the big players that dominate the global uh, economy. Can you just speak to whether the U.S. is alone in implementing sanctions regimes, or whether there's other countries that are typically issuing sanctions against actors or countries around the world? So, uh, you know, the U.S. sometimes finds itself alone, especially when it's come recently to Iran, for example. Um, We used to have a a lot of the EU countries on board um, and maybe China and Russia, I would say, in in our sanctions there. But um, after the fallout of the nuclear deal, uh, you know, I don't... a lot of the EU countries, they turned their back and tried to create anti, uh, anti-sanctions laws um, that basically told their, their businesses not to um, cooperate with U.S. sanctions yeah. programs. And that's called, right. caused a huge headache. But uh, the Biden administration... That's that's one, complicated for a company, right? You've yeah, that can be very complicated. There's sanctions and... 
And then the right, European right. officials say, no, 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 there's not. They don't apply to you. And then the U.S. says, yeah, they do. They do apply to you. All right. And then that's made a lot of companies, especially smaller businesses, um, like you were saying, that's helped make them more risk averse because, you know, how right. much is a business opportunity worth it for you as a company um, to undertake when you have these sanctions that are ambiguous and then maybe if you were to participate in the transaction, you would have issues with your own jurisdiction or with another jurisdiction that you're involved in. So it, it just makes people's risk appetite that much less. And, you, you know, it, it maybe lets only the big players um, continue to do business in those countries because they have the manpower to do it. Okay. We're going to shift gears a bit um, to our wrap up question. So, okay. Question for you. This is, you know, can be totally unrelated to sanctions and sanctions laws and rules and compliance and all that policy. You know, outside of your day to day, can you talk to one thing that you personally, whether on a on a personal uh, level or a professional level, are trying to continue to learn or develop something new, whether it's a new skill set or um, area of interest? Can you speak to one thing that you're working on? <laughs> Good question. I guess. <laughs> First and foremost, for me personally, is learning new things to cook and sharp, sharpening my skills um, on that front. Wow. But <laughs> yeah, but I would say on a more serious note, it would be uh, something that I've, I've undertaken myself um, professionally is to learn more about the laws and regulations administered by the Food and Drug Administration and how they work in practice since um, a significant part of the remaining trade uh, that does occur, as we kind of alluded to earlier, between the U.S. and um, and comprehensively sanctioned countries is agriculture, medicine, and medical supplies. So these two regulators kind of come hand in hand. Understanding how they both operate um, is is a great way for me personally to learn how you can still access those markets um, that are, that are, that are otherwise so closed off. Oh, that's a great answer. Okay. Thank you so much, Kian, for your time today and giving us a little bit of your perspective and the way you see the world and specifically sanctions, compliance and policies and all those things. Thank you, Sarah. It was really great getting Kian's perspective on the evolving role of sanctions. It's clear that this is a very volatile space with specific sanctions quickly changing and extensively changing. One thing to take away is his point about how companies are really becoming more risk averse to dealing with even individuals who are not sanctioned, but live in a very heavily sanctioned country or region. Another takeaway is the enormous impact that sanctions can have potentially on humanitarian crises, as we're seeing play out in Afghanistan and other countries around the world. It's a really delicate balance between addressing human rights violations and yet still acknowledging the people who live in a country and their overall well-being. This is something to really watch for in sanctions frameworks, but also in broader geopolitical discussions going forward. So thank you so much for joining Unlocking Impact. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. Please follow the show, subscribe, rate, and review it if you have a minute. <laughs> we really appreciate that. And I just hope that you can join us next episode. Thanks a lot.